Continuation of some of the thoughts we were considering last night. Masters tell a couple of stories. First one is a very famous story, and it's probable that most people here have, have heard it maybe several times even. Um, but again, it is a perfect epitome, a summing up of the way the Master deals with us, the way that we will consistently and persistently get in his way and the way that he won't give up both. So Sanchi tells the story of the man, the greedy man. Okay? He always refers to him as the greedy man who was walking with the master. The master, again, like the the master of the money, the uh, in the story of the money lender that we told last night, Master is living very simply and humbly, walking from place to place. No one seems to know who he is. Um, he stays with a family, and the family is very respectful of him. I mean, they they understand that he is a master, and the uh, the housewife prepares for him before he leaves three stuffed chapatis which are a very delicious kind of food that is eaten in India and just as he is leaving the greedy man attaches himself to the master and asks him if he can walk with him he doesn't know who he is or he doesn't know everything about who he is and the master says yes. So they are walking together and at one point the master has to leave the path and go into the woods and the greedy man who is there because he thinks that he can find something worth stealing quickly goes through the master's belongings. But he can't find anything except for the three stuffed chapatis. So he eats one of them. He is hungry and he just takes one. Then he puts everything back the way it was. So the uh, master comes back and he picks up his stuff and he instantly sees that one stuffed chapati is gone. So he says, all right, let's, let's stop and have lunch. And he uh, takes out the bag and he says, weren't there, weren't there three stuffed chapatis here? There's only two here now, but there were three. And the greedy man says, no, master, no, there were, there were only two. No, there were two. So he says, all right, here, you have one and I'll have one. And then they walked on. And they came to a river that was in flood. And the river was very dangerous. And the greedy man became very afraid. And he didn't know how they were going to get across. And the master said, well, if you remember the God who made you and who loves you and who has take care, taken care of you all through life up to now, 
then you can um, be saved. So the greedy man did that. He remembered that God, and they got across the river somehow, and on the other side the master said to him, Now, in the name of the God who made you and who loves you and who saved you from the river, tell me, did you eat that third stuffed chapati? And the greedy man said, No, Master, I swear in the name of that God who made me and who loves me and who saved me from the river, I did not eat that third stuffed chapati. The Master said, All right. And they walked along until they came to a forest, and the forest was on fire. It was a raging fire, and the greedy man again became very afraid. And the Master said, Well, the God who made you and who loves you has saved you once already from the river, now uh, maybe he will save you from the fire too, if you remember him. So the greedy man said, all right, I will do that. And they closed their eyes and remembered God and made it through the forest fire, all right. And on the other side, the master again stopped him and he said, now, in the name of the God who made you and who loves you, and who saved you from the river and from the fire. Now tell me, did you eat that third stuffed chapati? And the greedy man said, No, Master, I swear in the name of the God who did all those things, and no, I did not eat that third stuffed chapati. And the Master said, All right. And they walked along, and uh, very soon they came face to face with a man-eating tiger, who was in rampage, and uh, the greedy man became very afraid. But the master said, Well, the God that made you and loved you has saved us twice simply because you remembered him. So now remember him once again, and maybe he will save you from the tiger. So they did that, and the tiger suddenly decided to go in another direction and disappeared. And the master said to him, All right, now, in the name of the God who made you, who loves you, and who saved you from the flood, from the fire, and from the tiger, tell me, did you eat that third stuffed chapati? And the greedy man said, No, master, I swear in the name of the God who made me and loves me and all those things, I did not eat that third stuffed chapati. So the master said, All right. And Sanchi says, when he tells this story, at this point he says that the master was determined to save that man. So he figured out, but he couldn't do it until he told the truth. So he figured out another way. He created, using his supernatural power, he created a pile of jewels. And he divided that pile of jewels into three piles. And he said uh, to the greedy man, all right, this first pile is for me, the second pile is for you, and this third pile is for whoever ate that third stuffed chapati. And the greedy man said, All right, Master, I swear by the God who made me and who loved me that I did eat that third stuffed chapati. So Sanchi says, Well, he, he told him the truth, and then he was able to save him. So I think that we should not worry. You know, the master who is determined to save that greedy man is not going to be cowered by us. 
he is not he is not going to be prevented from doing what he has come to do because of us but it is his determination not our virtue what the grace of god means simply that no matter what we do how we get in the way no matter what ingenious tricks we devise to prevent the grace of god from working on our own selves that yeah he will see that it does work even so he will use our own least likable qualities against us so that we will be saved just as it was the greedy man's greed which finally did him in he couldn't resist that third pile of jewels the other story that i think we a lot of us as we go along on the path right the problem of ups and downs of we dis, we we do make some progress and then we think about the progress we have made and we lose it uh and then we become aware of that this is a a pattern that that i have lived through many times i it, in a way on one level you could say that it just keeps on happening because there are levels and levels too um but the thing is that if we allow the grace of god to protect us from ourselves that it will work the story that i'm thinking of is one that sanchi has told several times and it was one of the actually one of the first stories that judith and i ever heard him tell he he told it to the group of us that were there in his ashram in rajasthan in uh, may 1976 which was very early in his mission and the story is of guru gobind singh and his sevadar named yoga and uh, yoga was very devoted and he was a very good sevadar and guru gobind singh loved him very much and he wanted to get married so uh the master said yes you can get married but promise me this that i may need to send for you and if i need to send for you um you should come whenever i call and not wait even for a minute so yoga said all right master i will do that so he went and uh he was getting married and in india the marriage ceremonies are are much longer and more elaborate than people in the west are used to and there are among other things in the in the sikh ceremony there are four circlings which are have have a great symbolic meaning they all have spiritual meaning guru ramdas uh, wrote a very beautiful uh, marriage hymn in which the the inner meaning of those four circlings is shown each one is is representative of a different stage of the soul's journey toward god but anyway until the four circlings are done the person is not really married and in between the third and the fourth circling the message came to yoga that the master wanted him so instantly he left the wedding ceremony right there 
and he walked out, leaving the bride and the family and the guests and the priest and everyone all there in the in the uh, temple. And uh, he started back toward his master. And on the way, he started thinking, you know, I, I have done a really good thing. He thought, this was not an easy thing to do. I was, I mean, after all, I was getting married, and I wanted to get married, and uh, I had promised the master I would come, and he sent for me at the most difficult time, the most embarrassingly difficult time, and I did it. So I'm, I'm pretty good. And uh, he thought he, he deserved a reward. So, and this is the way. I mean, there's a non sequitur here that is huge, but if we think about it, we will see that, that we often work like this. We don't realize it at the time usually, but, but we do. So he decided to go to a house of prostitution on the way to the master. Now, this seems absurd and bizarre, and the thing is that um, it is very comparable to a lot of things that, that we do. Once we get thinking, I am good and I deserve a reward and like that, then a lot of other things follow. So he went to a house of prostitution and there was a guard outside and uh, he asked if he could get in and the guard said, no, I, I don't think this is a good time for you to come in. Uh, no one's here and um, you should uh, go away and uh, maybe come back later. So Joga thought, this is strange, but okay. So he went away, but still that thought, no, I deserve this, I have earned this, I have, I have this, this right to do this. So he went back an hour or two later, and the guard was there, and the guard said, um, uh, no, you can't come in. Um, there's no one here, go away, please. And Joga thought, what kind of a guard is this? Don't they want business? What is this? So he went away, but he tried a third time, and the guard again said, finally this time, he said, look, is this the way you you answer your master's summons? He said, go, go, he's called you, go to him. How long are you making him wait? What's the good of leaving your wedding if you're going to do this? So Joga was shamed and, and startled. He thought, how did he know? And And he started back toward the master. When he got to Guru Gobind Singh's place, uh, he decided he had better go to see him right away. So he went in, and the master was very tired. And uh, he was yawning, and his eyes were red. And, and uh, Joga said, um, Why are you so tired, master? And he said, Well, I was up all night trying to save a disciple from himself. He said, It wasn't easy either. And, Joga said, then he suddenly realized, he said, you were the guard. And the master said, yes, I was the guard, and you weren't easy to convince. <laughs> so this kind of thing, we do get into these situations, and we should try not to. Obviously, Joga would have been much better off had he been able to not decide he needed a reward and to take it to try to take it, would have been much better off. But the fact is that that's the way a lot of us work. The Master knows that. He doesn't stop loving us because of that. That's the point. I think um, I have told, this is a story that happened to me. 
and I have told this before, and um, it's in my book too, and some of you, again, maybe most of you know it, but it, I can't, I never think of that story about yoga without thinking about this story. And this is that back in the early 60s, okay, back in another era, right, I had been off the path for a while, and then both Judith and I had gone back onto the path. And, uh, but I hadn't, we hadn't had any contact with satsangis, except maybe a little bit. Because I was very shy. I was thinking, they will all judge me and this and that. And, um, you know, I haven't been good. So who am I to see them and so forth? I felt like that. So the East Coast representative at that time, Mr. Kana in Washington, D.C., wrote us a postcard uh, inviting us to come to a series of meetings, a kind of a retreat, very very similar to this actually, that was being held in Boston. And uh, he said a lot of satsangis from all over the Northeast will be there. And I got really excited and I thought this would be great to go. Judith couldn't go because our son Eric was just a few months old. He, um, this was in April and he had been born in September and, and we hadn't so far um, left him anywhere and we thought he was too young to take. So uh, she stayed home but I went down and I drove down to Boston. The meeting was on a house on Marlborough Street and I parked, I had a Jeep station wagon I remember and I parked it at where Marlborough Street runs into the public garden and which was quite a ways down the street, which is significant, as you'll see. And I started to walk up the street toward the house, and I began to get cold feet. And I didn't want to uh, go in anymore. All of my excitement and enthusiasm sort of went away. And I thought, um, gee... Uh, suppose they judge me. Suppose they don't like me. Uh, suppose they're too spiritual for me. I've, after all, I, I was very worldly for a couple of years. Um, maybe I won't be able to, to deal with them. They'll be too rarefied like that. So I was thinking these thoughts, and I talked myself out of going in as we came up, as I came up to the door of the house, which was, that is, the, the steps came down onto the sidewalk. The door was quite a ways up a, a flight of steps and a porch. I saw the house, which house it was, and I, I mentally decided, no, I'm not going in. I'll go call up some old friends and we'll drink beer, and that'll be it. And this is too much for me, and I'm not spiritual anyway, and, and I don't want anything to do with this. So I made that decision. And I was very clear in my mind. And just at that second, an elderly lady, um, whom I had never seen in my life, um, she was dressed in black and uh, very, not an unusual looking person at all, on the heavy side. Uh, she um, stopped in front of me and said, Hey, 
which house is this Hindu thing in? And I looked at her in absolute amazement. And I said, I, I, I don't know, but I think it's this one right here. And I pointed to the house that I knew very well was the right one. <laughs> As she looked at me for a split second, grabbed me by the wrist and said, come on, let's go in. <laughs> and she dragged me up the steps into the house. And I, when I was passive, I will tell you, I, went, I did not know I, what was going on. And uh, I went in and I met everyone and people were very nice to me. No one judged me. No one was unfriendly. And furthermore, I loved it. And those two days very much changed my life. Okay, I went back home and as a direct result of that, Judith and I began to hold satsang a few months later and eventually um, Sant Bani Ashram was uh, begun. And uh, truthfully, that all came out of those two days. And that was a very crucial time. And now that woman was a real person. I, she was not the master in, a, in an obvious, um, magical kind of way. I got to know her a little bit later. We never talked about that incident. I never dared to ask her what, what was on her mind. I wasn't sure what she would say. Uh, but she was definitely a real person. She had a life of her own, and she was a member of the Boston Sangat. And um, I, I don't know. You know, on that particular occasion, though, it was the master himself who was stopping me. He just used the nearest available form, and and he will, and he can, and he is uh, perfectly capable of doing anything required to protect us from ourselves. And I think that, you know, there are, there are ways and ways of being protected. And there's a lot of, of writing in the literature about protection. And we, we can tell what protection is not. I mean, he doesn't keep us from dying when our time is up. He doesn't keep us from getting sick if our fate karmas depend on that. None of those things, I mean, bad things do happen to satsangis, just like they happen to everyone else. But there is, the point is that under the protection of the Master, that which happens to us is always only those things which somehow or other we can make best use of in order to become closer to God. Now, if this may mean that in some cases he makes one thing happen instead of another thing. But more likely in my experience is he just uses whatever happens for us to profit from. And if we don't profit from it, then he uses that. If we make a mistake, if we don't respond correctly, he manages to show us how we did not do what we should have done so that we can do it next time. And as someone once said, actually a very intelligent um, and quite impressive guy that I once heard speak at Harvard, he was a, a, um, a, a coach, a, uh, the rowing, they call it crew, the crew coach of the rowing team. He said, uh, failure is education. 
I never heard it better put. Failure is education. We fail, we learn. I thank God. Master says that, um, he quotes Kabir, if the traveler falls down, don't, don't find fault with him, O Kabir. The one to find fault with is the one who never starts on the journey. Okay? And Master Kripal used to say that if you fall down, if you're walking somewhere and you fall down, at least you're a body length closer than you were before you fell. When you pick yourself up, you're that much further along. It's a painful way to travel. <laughs> but uh, if uh, you know, some of us, and, and the emphasis here is on us, namely me, uh, this may be the only way we can travel. It's, if it is, then that's what he'll make. He'll, he'll have us travel that way. A point is to get there and to become that which we have to become in order to get where we have to go. This is our destiny. This is what we were born to be and to do, is to find God and to live a life on earth through which the love of God can reach others. In this way, we will be true sevadars and true servants of God. You know, Jesus says, Seek and ye shall find. Ask and it shall be given to you. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Okay, this is a powerful verse. You know, a powerful, powerful verse. I think one of the verses that uh, people who do not fully get into what we can call the spiritual aspect of Jesus' teachings never really come to appreciate, I think. But when I was searching, that verse used to be a, a very powerful source of comfort for me. And it was, um, I would remember it at times when I would doubt or have doubts. Sometimes I would doubt the search. Sometimes I would doubt the fact that I was doing it. I would think, who are you to be looking for God? What is this? What kind of arrogance is this? You know, who, who do you think you are that you can go find God in this lifetime? What, what nonsense is this? I would say that to myself sometimes, and I would think, come on, back off. Be, be normal. Come on now. Just live your life and, and uh, don't, um, don't take on more than you can deal with. But the thing is that that is a promise that Jesus gave to everyone who wants to hear it. If we can hear it, if we let it sink in, then we can live up to it. And uh, in the doing so, even if we don't know we're searching, you see, there's a conscious search and there is an unconscious search. And when the Master picks up someone like the greedy man in the story, that we just heard, or the money lender in the story we told last night, uh, these people have also searched. You know, it's not that they are not searching; they are not able to articulate it or to think about it the way some others may be. But they definitely were also searching, and they also counted. And in that unexpressed, inarticulate yearning for God that they had masked there underneath all that greed and deceit and so forth that, that was the characteristic of their lives, 
God was able to hear that. You know, and this is why, you know, we can't really judge others. This is why Jesus said, Judge not that ye be not judged. There again, a very powerful statement. Okay, so powerful that um, all society and the world we know is built on the ignoring of it. You know, no country could be called a Christian country that ignores that that um, commandment, and everyone ignores it. So we can think, you know, what does it mean? To, to obey what Jesus said. In the... Um, in the book Streams in the Desert, Sanchi tells the story of the man who was thrown out of his village, the outcast. He was thrown out of his caste for being a sinner. Presumably he had committed adultery. And he was living by himself, not in a village, which in India is a rare thing. And a master came by, again, a, a sort of anonymous master, not particularly known by people, and was surprised to see him living by himself. And he said, um, um, what's going on? And the man said, I am a sinner. He said, I am no good. They have thrown me out. And uh, I am just nothing. And the master thought, I want to save him. So he knew the man was not up to taking initiation. And so he said, what do you like? What, what is it that you want most in all the world? And the man said, I would like to have a son. Ajamal was his name. Yeah, Ajamal the sinner. And uh, man, the master said, all right, you will have a son. And you will name him Narayan. Now, Narayan means God in Sanskrit or Hindi. So the man started thinking, oh, I'll have a son. Oh, wow. And he began thinking of him constantly using the name Narayan, which also means God. So that every time the master had worked such a thing, that every time he remembered his son, he remembered God. And uh, he died, it is said. He left the body asking Narayan to save him. And Narayan did save him. And the master gave him that because he wasn't up to anything else. But he gave him what he could deal with. So we should know, we should understand, you know, that on the physical plane, when God... When people pray to God, anyone, not just an initiate, but anyone, prays to God, that that prayer is heard and is answered by God working through the living master. And that is the way that, that the physical plane works. When Jesus was on earth, then he was the one who did this. When Buddha was on earth, he was the one who did this. When Kabir was on earth, he was the one who did this, and so forth. And this is the way that God works. On the physical plane, he works through the human being, or sometimes more than one human being, in whom he is made flesh. 
or we can say who has cleared away everything that's in the way so that God can work through him. But the masters have made it very clear and we should be very, we should understand this very much. This is also in the Gospels too, that the guru, the master, is the word. Okay? That which counts, that which is active in the master, that which makes him a master as distinct from other people, is the word in him, the word made flesh. That is what the guru is. And there is only one guru, one master for the entire universe and for all time, and that is the word. It functions through many different bodies, as many bodies as required in order to reach people on the physical plane in their own language, in their own way, as and when is required then that word will take flesh. But um, it is only one word all the same. That is why the Bible says, and, and is it correct, the glory of the word made flesh is the glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father. The word is the only begotten Son. There is only one Son, one word. And that becomes flesh as often as required, because God loves us. Clement of Alexandria, who was a great church father in Egypt around the second century, and very aware of the esoteric teachings of Jesus and of his successors, wrote that the word of God became flesh so that human beings might learn from a human being how a human being becomes God. And that is the point. That is what the Master comes to make us what he is. He is not content with making us followers of his or believers in him. That's the first step. But what he wants is to make us like him or as Master Kripal used to say, more than me, I would say. Those are the Master's own words, you know, more than me. So this is what we have, you know, this is what is available to us. This is what we have waiting for us, we can say. This is what the whole thing is about, is that we have this birthright, okay, this heritage, which is ours. And um, it is our great privilege to act and to live in such a way that we allow ourselves to take from the Master what he wants to give us. And whether we allow him to or not, sooner or later he will give it to us. But if we let him, if we let him, it will happen quicker. Once I was leaving, I went to say goodbye to Master Kupal Singh in September 1973 and I told him I was going and he said if you let me I'll go all along with you and then he repeated it if you let me I'll go all along with you so there is he, he is with us but if we let him it will be much more obvious to us 
we will know. And uh, that's our privilege. As his children, that's what is open to us. That is our option, we can say. So it's a beautiful thing, the story of God and his love for us that will never stop. Or you can say God and his love for his created universe. But the point of it is that that includes us. Yeah. And we are both the most important and the least important people in the world. You know, there's a Hasidic rabbi who has a saying that everyone ought to have two pockets, in one of which is written a thing that says, I am earth and ashes, and in the other one, for my sake, the universe was created. And he should pull in pull out of those pockets um, each of those papers as required. Sometimes we need to look at one. Sometimes we need to look at the other. You know, if Joga had looked at the earth and ashes one when he was feeling so good about himself, he would have done much better. But oftentimes when we feel like we're scum, okay, like we're worthless, we can remember, no, no. No matter how much we feel like that, it's never true. The universe was created for our sake. God loves us. He loves us so much that he has come to get us, to bring us back to himself. He will never, never let us go. We should never forget that. If we remember that, then everything else can follow. And if we can somehow remember at the same time what Master Kripal used to call right understanding, Okay, which really is the recognition of the God in us and in others. He used to say, if that God resides in every heart, there's no high, no low, no east, no west, no black, no white, no male, no female. God resides in every heart. All of these distinctions we have made important but they don't have anything to do with the essential humanity of each of us. And this is what is to convey, if we convey to people this right understanding, then how can there be any war? How can there be any killing of each other? If people know this, if they are taught this, if they are brought up to think like this, that God is in every heart, no high, no low, the kingdom of God is within all of us. Hmm? There's, this is the way that things can get better. And if um, we can remember this, that God not only loves us, but he loves everyone else too, including people we would be inclined to judge after all, which is why. Judge not that ye be not judged, okay? Um, wh who was more worthy of contempt than the money lender who had no good deeds to his credit, not one? Who is more worthy of ridicule and derision than the greedy man who lied three times to the master, cheerfully took oaths, powerful sacred oaths before a God-man, absolute lies? Who is more contemptible and unworthy than those people? 
And yet the master loved them so much that he would not give up in any case. In the case of the moneylender, he carried his luggage on his head for an hour. In the case of the, man, of the greedy man, he gave him chance after chance. Yesterday we said this was the path of the million chances. And this is what is meant, you know, this is what we mean by that. The Master will keep on with us. It does not mean that we should not do our best. Certainly our effort counts. And um, the more we do, the less the Master has to put himself out, obviously. Yes, he will take some of our karmas on himself. This is what Jesus did at the crucifixion. He took on the karmas of those people who had connected themselves to him, many of whom he had healed. When he healed them, he took their karmas on himself. He knew what he was doing. He knew that it was going to lead to suffering and pain for him, but he didn't mind. He cared more about the other person than he did about that. And similarly, I remember someone once asked Master Kripal Singh in my presence, I was there, it was actually in California in 1972, why was Jesus the only master who died for the sins of the world? And Master Kripal said, all masters have died for the sins of the world. It's part of their job. If you read Isaiah 53, beautiful, powerful, passage that will make us cry if we think of the meaning of it. If we read it carefully, we see this applies to all masters. This is the description of the master, of one part of, of his job at any rate. And um, knowing this, you know, then certainly the cleaner the life the more we care about what he says. At the end of the initiation instructions, he tells us, respect my words more than my body. This will give you real lasting good. Be sincere to your own self. God is within you, and the Master is also within you, and you will receive help. And it covers the ground. That's the way of it. That's a, a description of the path, very briefly. But if we respect his words more than his body, you know, if you love me, keep my commandments, used to be posted on the porch at Sawan Ashram. It was sitting right now, if you, if you were having darshan, if you were sitting on the porch, Master Kripal Singh would be in his wicker chair, right next to his head was a placard, a framed like poster, not very big, but um, there, very visible from all over the porch. If you love me, keep my commandments. And the reference from the Gospel of John. That's what the Master used to emphasize. But, you know, we should at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, in Exodus chapter 20, it says, I am the Lord thy God who has brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. 
Then he goes on to give the commandments. He he gives the commandments to the children of Israel that he brought out of the house of slavery. It's because he brought them out of the house of slavery that he is giving them the commandments. It's not the other way around. He doesn't say, and, and the placement also, I am the Lord thy God who will bring you out of the house of slavery if you keep these following commandments. Note the difference, you see. One is the, is the traditional king, ruler, lawgiver mode in which uh, people tell us, uh, keep these laws and if you don't, we'll punish you one way or the other. And the other is the mode of a friend. A friend rescues someone and then he says, okay, um, if you want to make best use of what I have given you, you will live this way. And this will lead to that, and this will lead to this. But I don't stop loving you. Whether you do it or not, I will love you. If you love me, keep my commandments does not mean if you don't keep my commandments, I won't love you. You see, this is the way a lot of people read it, but it's not true. It's not what Jesus is saying. Similarly, when God was speaking through Moses on Mount Sinai, he had already proven his love for those people by rescuing them. When the Master initiates us, he rescues us. Okay, He is taking us out of the house of slavery, out of the land of Egypt, and he is bringing us into the promised land. Right? And if we live the way that he suggests, if we take seriously the things he says about nonviolence, in thought, word, and deed, including the judging of others, okay, truthfulness, chastity, love for all, hatred for none, regardless, Master Kripal used to say, of position, wealth, or learning, and selfless service. If we take those things seriously and do our best, then we will be able to make better use of the rescue that we have been given. In the 19th chapter of the book of Leviticus, what is called the Holiness Code, people sometimes call it the Law of Holiness, this is where the famous Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself that Jesus quotes but not makes up. He quotes it from this chapter in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But in Leviticus 19 is where it is found. There are a whole host, a series of commandments um, in this chapter. Each of them ends with uh, the statement, you shall be holy as I am holy, I am the Lord. And this is why he is giving them to us. We love our neighbor as ourself because this is what God does. Okay? At another point he says, you shall love the alien as yourself. You will not hold the alien in contempt because you were aliens in the land of Egypt. A statement that is often forgotten in many readings of the Bible by different religious groups. We cannot cannot afford to hold the alien, the one not like us, in contempt because we were aliens in the land of Egypt. We also were out of our element. We were not what we were meant to be. 
Therefore, we do not have, there is no moral capacity in us to not love the other. We have to love the other. And uh, we have to because God is God. This is what he says. I am the Lord at the end of each of those commandments because I am the Lord. It's not a question. If we tie it up to being punished or rewarded, this is the negative power's domain. There is a lot of that in, in, in biblical religion and in all religions, but that's not the highest truth. The highest truth is what God gave to Moses after bringing him out of the house of slavery and what Jesus said to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commandments. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is like. You know? It's um, a series of statements on the same order of, well, if you go out into the road when cars are going by at 90 miles an hour, it's possible that uh, something not so nice may happen to you. So you might want to stay on the sidewalk. This is the Sermon on the Mount is a way of looking at the universe which sees it the way it really is. Okay, it is a glimpse of reality. And it, um, if we read it carefully and understand the implications of it, we will learn everything that we need to learn about what the Master wants us to do with our lives. It's the same teaching. And we will we can see that. Yeah? This is what we were born to be. I mean, after all, Jesus said, not Master Kripal Singh, not Sanchi, not Kabir or Guru Nanak, but Jesus Christ himself said, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If it was not possible, if it was not possible, how could he have said it? The fact that Christian theology, which came up after Jesus, has maintained on theological grounds that it is not possible simply means that they were not paying attention to the implications of what he said. They're more interested in what other people said about him, which is the curse of the Christian church. They are more interested in opinions about Jesus than in doing what he very plainly asked us to do. We are supposed to be perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect. And furthermore, we can be perfect like our Father in Heaven is perfect. And the Living Master is the proof of that. He is what we can be. Jesus was the proof of that in his day. He was asking his disciples to do what he himself had done. And he was saying, furthermore, not only is this possible, but it is what was supposed to happen. And the Master does the same thing in this day. And later on when Jesus says, it is not those who say unto me, Lord, Lord, who enter the kingdom of heaven, but those who do the will of my Father in heaven, this is another way of saying the same thing. It's not a question of having an opinion about Jesus, calling him Lord, it's a question of finding what the will of the Father is and doing it. And the living master in any generation and in any country and in any religion is the person who knows better than anyone else how to do the will of the Father. <laughs>
That's what he, that's what his life means. And that is why he is guiding us to do the same thing. This is also open to us too. So it's, it is a huge thing, you know, the, the, the world that the Master shows us, the universe that the Master opens up for us is absolutely enormous and it is there for our taking. But if we cannot, you know, if we cannot do it all at once, we shouldn't feel bad because um, this is the way that people are. We are dependent on grace. I have sometimes felt, um, in fact, I will say that I have always felt that anything that I have come to know, to understand, to experience, to accomplish on this path, assuming that there is anything like that, but anything like that that I am aware of is in only and solely because of the grace of God. And I, you know, I see that so clearly. It's like there is no way that any of us can really do what we are supposed to do. We can only allow it to be done. The grace of God will work in us if we allow it to be done. And if we do that, this is something like, I mean, after all, yoga in the story allowed the grace of God to work by leaving the wedding when the master ordered him. He could not keep it up. He could not spend, uh, stay the whole night in the same moment of leaving the wedding. But the fact that he had left the wedding made it possible and obeyed the master, made it possible for the master to save him. And uh, similarly, it was the fact that the money lender in the story we told last night, was willing to walk with the master in the first place. And the fact that the greedy man had spent enough time with the master, then was willing to accept the pile of jewels. You see, in those cases, they allowed the master to work along the terms that the master was had laid down for them on that particular thing. And so it is, the more we obey, the more we are allowing the Master to work in us so that we can accomplish something. But it won't be us who is accomplishing. This is a very real thing. Sanchi has quoted Baba Sawan Singh many times as saying that people think that they go to satsang, they get initiated, they love the Master, this and that. Later, when their eyes are open, they see that it is he who is going to satsang, it is he who got initiated, it is he who is loving himself. And we do really see this. I mean, this becomes, it is like we are allowed to participate in that. We participate in the angle of vision of the master. In so doing, we participate also in his stature. And this is a, a beautiful thing about the way the Master works with us, I think. All right, I, I want to close by reading one brief thing from Master Kapal Singh. 
and let's see here. Here we go. Two seekers after God went to a master. The master told them, look here, here are two pigeons. Take them away and kill them someplace where nobody sees you. One was very active. He went around under the shade of a wall where nobody was looking, killed it and came back in a few minutes. The other poor fellow, wherever he went, did not find any place where nobody would see him. From morn till night he went around and around, and he returned in the evening unsuccessful. The master asked him, what? Haven't you been able to kill it? No, sir. Why? Could you not find any place to do it? No, sir. And who was seeing you? The very pigeon was seeing me. Follow the beauty of the sayings, I tell you. Live up to them, each one of you. You must be an ambassador, I tell you. Whoever has got the human body has the birthright to become God, I tell you. There is no exaggeration about it, but the pity is that we don't follow it. That was part of a talk that Master Kripal gave many years ago on January 19th, 1964, that Judith and I were present at and heard it's from the same, I actually read other sections of that talk last night. This is the, the beauty of it. This is what is meant. This is another way of saying, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. We can do it, why? Because we have the birthright to do it. This is why the commandment can be given, because we have the capacity to do it. Not overnight, in most cases, not easily in any case, but there it is. It is, commandment is given to us because it is possible to be fulfilled. And at the very least, we can take some steps in that direction and have some understanding of the love of God and the purpose of the universe and what it's all about. So thank God, I would say, for the Master and for his love and for his grace.